Welcome to Law of Startups Podcast. I'm Mike Schneider. And I am Joe Wallen. Thank you for being with us this morning. Uh, today, we're very lucky to have in the studio, Mike Davidson. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> So Mike, so Mike is uh, Mike's led a I'd call it a storied career in tech in Seattle. I mean, you you uh, you were most recently at Twitter, and now I now I see your LinkedIn profile says you're on the couch, which is nice. Well, technically, I'm <laughs> in the office with you here right now, but after we get done, I'm going back to the couch. So yes, but, but uh, so, that that describes my 2016 so far. So tell us the story about how you how you got to the couch. <laughs> How I got to the couch? Well, it's a long story. Um, no, so I, I'm 42 years old right now, and I pretty much have never taken a break from work in my life. Um, you know, just kind of always hopped on the next train when it came, when it, you know, when it came. So I, I, you know, most of my life, most of my career has been spent in Seattle, uh, worked at uh, ESPN, uh, Disney, a startup called SeasonTicket.com back in the day, started my own company called Newsvine, sold it to NBC News <clears throat> in 2007, and then I uh, went to uh, San Francisco for three years and uh, led the design team at Twitter. And so that was my most recent position, and in February I left and decided to just let a few trains go by. Um, and so I've just been taking 2016 off and, uh, you know... Uh, kind of recharging the batteries for what's next. Yeah, it sounds like the right way to go. Yeah, I mean, that that's a, a fantastic story in terms of how you got there. And I, I think you're doing the right thing to take a little time to recharge. I always thought that the, the real, like once I started having some success in entrepreneurship and, and had some some money in the bank, I felt like the one of the biggest things that enabled me to do was was to, to sit back and wait for the right things to come uh, as opposed to just taking whatever happens to be around. And so there's, there's kind of a nice luxury of being able to, um, you know, be able to to just pay attention to the things you're interested in and, and wait till some kind of interesting opportunity presents itself um, as opposed to just jumping on what's there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's obviously, you know, I, I feel lucky to be, you know, in a position where I can, you know, even do that. Um, you, you've got a few things go your way, um, you know, to be able to, you know, take even a few months off. But, you know, it is a, it is a lot more common in other countries and other industries. Like, you know, it's, it's a very common thing to take a sabbatical every seven years in some countries or in, even in the teaching profession. Um, but in the U.S. and in tech, you know, taking even a few months off uh, is looked at sometimes as a stigma. You know, like what's this gap in your employment? Why why were you unemployed for three months? Why are you unemployed for for, for six months? And the people that I've talked to who have been considering similar moves um, always kind of ask, "Well, does this make me you know, less less employable? And am I going to be is being out of the game going to put me kind of at a disadvantage when I decide to to start working again?" And I mean, my answer so far is absolutely not. Um, I, I think it's uh, you know I think it's good, and if anything, with each passing week, each passing month. Uh, you know, the opportunities kind of become more clear uh, to you. And, and I think if you, you know, if you've, if you've done your job and you've, you've, you've met, you know, the, 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 the people that you need to know in your industry and in whatever town you live in, um, you know, those opportunities will always be there for you. So, you know, you don't want to wake up when you're 70 years old and take your first, you know, six-month vacation you know, and you won't be able to move. Um, you want to be able to kind of, uh, you know, take a break and travel and hike and do whatever you want, you know, while your body can still handle it. So what was it? What was it like? It must have been pretty fun. So there was sort of a. I mean, I forgot which year it was. You went down. Was it 2012? 2012. Yeah. Yeah, I, I sort of remember there was like a little mini migration of Seattle, uh, Seattle tech folk to Twitter at that time. Um, yep. Buster Benson. Pretty... Buster Benson went down there. 
Uh, yeah, a few others. Uh, yeah, for sure. It was an interesting time to be at Twitter because it was pre-IPO by about a year, I believe. Uh, but it was big enough to where it was kind of clear that this was going to be a public company and was going to uh, uh, experience a lot of growth in the next few years. So I think when I got down there, there were – I was maybe like employee number 1,400 or 1,500 or something like that. And by the time I left, there was you know four or 5,000 employees. So, you know, being at a company like that, which was, you know, at the time used by, I think, about 120 million uh, users per month. And, you know, by the time I left, I think it was 330 million. Uh, you know, it's a big portion of the population using your service. And, you know, one of the reasons I decided to take the position in the first place is that, you know, m most people never get the chance to work on something that touches the lives of, you know, hundreds of millions of people. Um, and so that was, you know, and that's not, not just true of me at Twitter, it's true of everybody. It's true, you know, if you, if you, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a designer over there, if you're an engineer, if you're in sales, you're in marketing, you're in HR, you're, you're in legal, you know, you're, you're, you're contributing to a product that is important to a large, uh, uh, uh section of the world. And, you know, it's a, it's a good thing to, it's a good thing to be a part of because it, it really impresses upon you the kind of social responsibility of, um, you know, building products in an ethical way, uh, in a way that helps the world. So, so I mean, Twitter's Twitter's. I mean, you could say probably this, at least in this last presidential cycle, like, cycle without. I mean, what would what would the last cycle have been like without Twitter? I mean, Twitter's become like an important political instrument around the world, right? And we've seen both. I mean, good and bad. Yep. I mean, we thought we thought we were going to see amazing things out of the Middle East, and then we. I mean, we saw a lot of people using Twitter, and then we've seen sort of a fallback to not quite the democratic movement we thought, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a force for change, right? Like, the human voice is a force for change. And Twitter provides, uh, you know, an amplifier for the human voice, for, for better or for worse. So... You know, when when change happens in the world and, and you know, in, in a place like the Middle East or even now, like what, what we're experiencing in the United States, some of it can certainly be attributed to the power of services like Twitter and Facebook uh, and uh, other services that we you know, that, that we see emerging these days. But, you know, not all change is good. Um, and sometimes when we think we see change and we think we like it, you know, we, we wake up a year or two uh, or maybe even a day, a day or two in some cases and we realize, huh, that wasn't actually good for the world. Um, and so, you know, when you, when you work on a platform that can be used for both tremendous amounts of good and tremendous amounts of bad, um, it does sort of, you know, create a feeling in you. Uh, an unease uh, in you of you know whether or not you your work your actual physical work that you do every day is helping or hurting the world. Yeah, but if it was, I mean, if it wasn't Twitter, it would have been some other tool, right? I sure, mean, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I don't think there's anything. I don't think there's. I mean, there are a lot of unique things about Twitter, but I don't think there was any one thing, uh, you know, about about the service that has produced. Uh, you know, inordinate amounts of, of of bad as compared to other services. You know, I mean, in fact, you know, one of one of the things that we you know that we've been fairly religious about uh, for most of Twitter's existence, long before I got there, even, is the sanctity of you know reverse chron chronological uh, data in the feed. So what that means is, you know, when you are pulling open Twitter, you're seeing a, a linear stream of tweets. 
essentially ordered by time. Now we do a few things now, uh, you know, where we'll, we'll take popular tweets and you know put them at the top. But for the most part, it's you know it's reverse chronological and it's only from the people that you follow. Um, whereas other services have taken the, the you know the strategy of hey let's you know let's really analyze everything that's in the feed and let's 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 make sure that what you see at the top of your feed is always stuff that you like and always stuff that you're going to agree with and engage with. And I think you know. As, as we've seen on, you know, there's a lot of great things about Facebook, but you know, one thing that we've seen from Facebook as we do the, you know, post-mortem of this election is, you know, it is a service designed to keep you engaged all day and to really make you feel good um, all day. And part of making somebody feel good is prevent, is, sorry, is presenting them with opinions that reinforce their existing, uh, their, their existing opinions. Well, certainly you don't want to, certainly you don't want to go on to your Facebook account and find some disturbing post from somebody, maybe, I mean, a friend, maybe, but someone you don't agree with politically, you just don't want that. It's unpleasant. <laughs> I mean, yeah. let's be honest. Yeah. Like, I, people unfollow people who yeah. post things on Facebook that, are, that they don't yeah. like to see. Absolutely. And I... And I'm the same way. I, I like to... I'm there to sort of chat with some friends and yeah. or keep up with people. And I, I'm not there to have, like, an acrimonious uh, moment in my right. life. I don't... Like, the last thing I want, right? Yeah. Who wants to open Facebook and see a bunch of acrimonious political stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a good business decision to organize the feed that way. But like, if you think about it in terms of, uh, like an analogy of food, um, you know, if every time I sit down at a table to eat uh, a meal and I'm, I'm presented with ice cream, um, and cake, uh, and, uh, caramel and other sweet things like I'm going to love it. It's great. Like it tastes good. I love ice cream. I love cake. Um, and I would probably eat that all day uh, for breakfast, lunch and dinner um, if I wasn't aware of what that would actually do to my body. And I think we've had indoctrinated into us as kids over time the fact that, hey, eating sugar all day is bad for you and it will make you fat and it will give you uh, diabetes and it will make you, you know, die uh, quicker than you, quicker than you probably should. And so we've just sort of like been able to kind of balance, you know, all right, well, I need to have some healthy food and then maybe I can have some sweet stuff. And so like, I think a lot of what we see on these social services, not just Twitter, not just Facebook, um, other services as well is, you know, an overabundance of sweet stuff in our information diet. And I think this year in particular, it has become clear that we are sort of becoming obese on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so I do think I do think in general as humans, we do have trouble uh I mean, if somebody is a I mean, I'm I'm this way. Like if I know I'm not going to be able to change somebody's mind. I mean, if somebody if You're somebody a lawyer. Has, <laughs> You're in the wrong business, buddy. I'm, talk, I'm talking about political things. If somebody has a different political view than me, what's the odds I would actually be able to change that person's mind? I it's a way, I mean, almost virtually a waste of time to try to change someone's mind. I mean, it's just not, I mean, really, do you think you're really going to go out there and like convince your friends to change their mind about some political thing? It seems, well, it seems difficult. It is difficult, but look at all the people who have had their minds changed this year. Um, and I say changed, I use that word very, you know, liberally. I would, I would personally call it brainwashing. Um, but there are a lot of really good people in the world um, who voted this year for a candidate who, you know, is probably, you know, let's, let's face it, the least qualified candidate to ever run for uh, the presidency of the United States in a serious way. Um, 
And these are smart people. These are people who uh, are good uh, in many in, in many cases. These are people who have jobs. These are people who are well educated. Um, and you know, if you ask them four years ago, eight years ago, maybe even one year year ago, would you vote for somebody like like Donald Trump to to run this country? They would have said hell no. Um, but by virtue of everything that happened in 2016, um, you know, from the fake news to uh, you know, paying too much attention to scandals uh, that 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 you know aren't really material uh, to you know any number of other arguments that the candidate made. Um, those minds did get changed, and so you know, is it hard for you to to you know to sit across the table from a friend of yours and change their minds politically? Yes, but it's possible, and I think it's necessary for us to kind of take that sort of social responsibility to keep our friends informed um, and to keep people away from the stuff that is that that is frankly misleading yeah i feel like i'm i'm more open maybe now i don't know i don't know if i'm more open to to opposing ideas now than i was but i feel like like whereas last year i feel like i may have been inclined to spend more time reading posts and articles that that reinforced my own beliefs I, i feel like this election kind of was was a bit confrontational in a sense that it it showed me that what I thought everyone believed maybe didn't match up with what a lot of people believe. And I think for me, that's kind of created a bit of curiosity that, that I I am kind of fascinated at this point and and really do want to hear why people voted for Trump. If anything, just to try to understand, you mentioned, you know, these people are not idiots. They're, you know, they're, they're all, you know, hopefully voting in their best interest and the best interest of the country. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm having a hard time understanding their choice and I want to know, I, I don't know, I feel like I, I have a real desire to get some more information about why they made that choice and, and try to better understand it. If anything, maybe to make me feel better about the outcome. Yeah. And there's, <clears throat> there have been a lot of postmortems done um, on that exact question. You know, so that information is out there. Maybe do you guys do show notes for this. Can I? Um, yeah, we can. We, we okay. don't always do it, but I'll, we can. I'll dig yeah, up- if you yeah, I'll, I'll dig up a few links that that, that are that are pretty good reading uh, uh, in that regard. But you know, to your point, one thing that I th- that I find interesting is like I'm you know I'm 42 years old. I grew up on you know NBC nightly news at 6 p.m. watching it with the family, and you know then kind of graduating to the internet and like you know I have a fairly traditional kind of you know news upbringing, and I'm I'm sort of used to believing you know, 80 to 90% of what I read in the news and what I hear from politicians and, you know, realizing that like 10 to 20, 20% of it is probably, you know, either not true or, or, or biased in a way that is misleading. Um, and, you know, up until this year, I've always sort of looked at, at, pe- at the people who never believe anything as kind of crazy, you know, like, how do you not believe anything that you, that you, that you hear from politicians? How do you not believe anything that you see on the news? Like, you're crazy. Like, that is a crazy way to like live your life. And now, like this year, going into 2017, like my default position is to believe nothing (laughs) that comes out of our president's mouth. Like, I really, that, that is the way that I am starting 2017. Now, I hope he proves me wrong. I hope he, you know, starts telling the truth to people. But what we saw in 2016 in his campaign was unapologetic lying and deceit. Um, and so it's interesting kind of having the shoe on the other foot where like now we're the conspiracy theorists, right? Now we're the ones who, who when, when there's a press conference, you know, if he even does press conferences anymore, 
we're going to every every word that comes out of his mouth we're going to be like oh that's not you know that's not true like and it's just it, it's it, it's sort of an exercise in empathy i guess in a good way right because now you can sort of feel what it's like to you know to not believe anything coming from your your government yeah i mean there were a lot of people that that were that felt that way about obama like right. very very strongly and i would hear it and hear people say that, that he's never going to be my president or you know and and i kind of always just assumed it was racism yeah. uh, so it's it, but but it it has given me a, a better sense of what it's like to just basically want to reject the the situation altogether yeah, and say and like I, and it's hard for me to imagine anything good coming out of out of the administration Totally agree. Like, remember when Obama took over, you know, and Mitch McConnell, like, almost immediately was like, my number one priority is to make sure that you're a one-term president, you know? Like, that was like, ugh. I remember hearing that, and I think to myself, how could you possibly be rooting for this country to fail? Like, just because you hate this guy who's done nothing uh, bad to you. Um, And so, you know, now I sort of, yes, I feel the same way. I'm like, I want this guy out of office as as soon as possible. Um, But I I don't want to, like, get into the trap of of creating a false equivalence there. Like, I think a lot of the attitude towards Obama before he even started, uh, you know, uh, uh, his term was racism um, and was uh, was was petty party politics, um, where, like, Obama didn't have much of a record, you know, at that point. He was a community organizer. He was a state senator for a little while. He was a U.S. senator. But he didn't have nearly as much of a record in terms of, like, how he treats people, especially in a a negative way, um, as our incoming uh, uh, president-elect does. And so I feel like it's a lot more fair game to be um, skeptical uh, about the character of this person uh, who is about to take office uh, in January than it was eight years ago. Yeah. Tr- yeah, go ahead, Mike. Sorry. I was going to say, I'm trying to think what it is a, between the difference between Republicans and Democrats that's so big that would cause people to say, uh, you know, I'm going to stop any progress that this person can make. And, and I'm, you know, like, so there's clearly like a hatred in some cases for just everything liberal. And the, the 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 desire on the part of the Republicans to just stop, you know, whatever whatever is proposed by the liberal government, um, and, and I'm wondering if it's you know is it, it it's got to be driven by something where they say we're so ideologically apart that we can't come to to um, consensus. And I'm thinking is is it abortion? Is it just the different positions on government spending? Because you know that it's not like it's not like Republicans and Democrats, especially when you're looking at the the classification of just politicians in general, they're not all that different. I mean, they're all trying to do roughly the same stuff and they're all broken in the same way. It's just weird that I'm trying to think what, whatever, what is that one issue that divides the liberals from the, from the conservatives that, that makes people, you know, hate the other side so much. Well, part of it is, part of it is self-preservation for sure. Like if you look at the way Congress is falling in line right now, GOP Congress is falling in line with with Trump right now. It's a, I mean it is pure self-preservation. It is I want to be reelected to my seat. Um most of the people in Congress even on the GOP side were not Trump fans before Trump won. And immediately now they are cozying up to the candidate who thinks can keep them in office. So that's always part of it. And I think that's probably true on both sides of the aisle. Um, you know, and, and that's maybe a great argument for term limits, right? Like, uh, if you had, you know, if we had term limits in Congress and in the Senate, you know, you wouldn't worry about being a senator for 30 years because you couldn't. Um, so I think that, you know, that's, that's probably a good thing that, that, that we should, we should be looking into. Second thing is, you know, in terms of like liberalism versus conservatism, 
Uh, I think you're right. Like there, there are a lot of similarities there. But, but if I try to like, if I try to kind of boil it down to one one issue these days, it's sort of like I feel like liberals want to adjust to the way the world is mm. and the way the country is and needs to be, uh, whereas conservatives sort of want to keep the country the way it was and the way it was founded and meant to be. Yeah, um, that's that's and- a great way to that's a great way to put it. Because you're right, it's it's not because that that gets to the heart of what I was thinking is which is like I can't put my finger on the one issue that that we're divided about. Except you're right, it's it's um some people are really would love for things to be the way they are or the way that they have been, and some people are looking to see things be different. Yeah, I mean, I, I just got done reading a book that I'm I'm sure both of you have read, and a lot of the uh, listeners of the podcast have probably read. I, I can't believe I had never read it till now. Uh, People's History of the United States. Uh, by Howard Zinn, um, probably one of the most important, if not the most important book I've ever read already. And I just finished it. And, um, you know, it's kind of amazing because, you know, when you're, when you're a kid, it, it is also biased in, in, in sort of a leftist way. And you have to realize that when you, when you read it. But one of the things um, about it is it sort of like really teaches you like what this country was when, when it was founded. You know, we like to Republicans like to say, well, you know, the founding fathers this or the founding fathers that. Well, if you really look at what happened when we first came into this country, like it was mass murder and genocide. Like that is what happened. Like when we took over this land, um, a lot of Native Americans were killed um, and a lot of African Americans were brought over and and put into slavery. And those uh, those two atrocities, um, the effects of those atrocities are still with us today. And so, you know, uh, the, the, whole, the whole all men are created equal thing that everybody likes to kind of talk about, like, no, that's actually not the way the, the country started. The way the country started was all white land-owning men are created equal and everybody else not quite as equal. So when I look at like liberalism, part of liberalism is trying to to right those wrongs, is 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 realizing that, hey, like this was an imperfect country and still is an imperfect country. And only by our actions and our and our increasing religious, racial uh, sen- you know, uh, 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 um, sensitivity and and adjustments. Can we make this a more perfect union? Like it was not. It was not a perfect union in 1776, and or in 1876, or in 1976. Um, and the frustrating thing about 2016 is, I feel like we had made so many. We had taken so many steps forward towards equality in this in this country, and now you know we are threatening to really, really take you know several steps backwards. You know, and, and to give some voice to whatever, you know, I, I don't know the, what the, the conservative side of this, I mean, that that argument and both of our positions on this probably make it sound like, you know, to, to feel otherwise is somehow wrong or, or backwards. But I mean, I can actually I can absolutely understand the desire to, to, to resist change, especially if that yep. change is making things worse for you in some way, a physical, you know, yeah. it, 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 you have to be you have to have a certain amount of, of um, privilege or or. Um, security in your situation to be able to say that I'm going to prioritize equal rights for people and, and yep. equality and, and these, these, these concepts over, you know, my own situation to, to do that. It sort of implies that you can do that without it like massively affecting your own well being. And uh, sure. so, so if you're, if you're closer to the poverty line or, or if you're, if your livelihood is more dependent on things staying the way they are, uh, or if things are just looking worse for you than they did five years ago, I, I guess I can completely understand why people would 
would be against that sort of change, even if they aren't thinking about it, just generally, you know, and on top of that, there's also just kind of inertia, which is like people, people probably are generally resistant to change anyway. Even, even yeah. if things are exactly the same for them, they probably would prefer to just know that everything's going to be the same than than it's different. Yeah, um, it's true. But in the animal kingdom, you know, the, the those who refuse to adapt go go extinct. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, you know, I think unless we can adapt as a society to the way the world is and the way that the world's going to be, you know, with with um, climate change and overpopulation and um, you know, uh, into integrate more integrated countries and economies, um, you know. If the, the the areas of the world who do that the slowest um, will be around for the shortest amount of time, and unfortunately, with things like climate change, uh, you know, one large country like the United States or China uh, bucking everybody else and doing things to you know to to, to pollute the air and and, and melt the ice um, affects everybody. This is not like uh, this is not like some third world country, you know, deciding to do something bad for their citizens. You know that that only you know we it only only affects us through you know photos. Um, yeah, you know, the, climate the whole, change is something that that affects everybody. Yeah, uh, like not not changing or, or the option to not change assumes that that's even an option, right? right. It, is, it assumes that if you don't do anything, everything's going to stay the same. When right. in reality, not doing it, anything could potentially be making things much worse. Yep. Um, yeah, it's a it's a tricky issue. I mean, what do you think about? Uh, so I'm, I was trying to think the other day about sort of what the upsides of the of the Trump administration might be. Um, in particular, like the, it sounds like the the cabinet and the people he's surrounding himself with tend to be partic- particularly wealthy people. I think I, I saw a statistic. Um, again, I don't want to spread false news that I don't know where it came from. This is probably part of the problem, but um, I, I heard something along the lines of, you know, that the, the top 17 earners or top, top 17 um, uh, highest net worth individuals in his cabinet and, and, and in these positions collectively has the same wealth as something like a third of the U.S. population. So they're like, they control a third of the U.S. population's wealth and they're directly controlling the, you know, or, or involved in the government. And and I was thinking that that may be bad, but maybe maybe there's something good there in a sense that uh, I'd like to think idealistically that maybe some of these folks are less subject to to uh, influence, influence, but you know, it's going to be awfully hard to buy someone off if they're already a billionaire. Um, maybe, maybe their, maybe their motivations will be more pure. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, Trump likes to call himself pro-business. I mean, he's actually pro-capital is what he is. And and pro-cap, I mean, there are two aspects of being truly pro-business. And, and one is being pro-capital, the other is being pro-labor. Um, and so I think what you're seeing in him and his cabinet is a very pro-capital force. And so, you know, this it goes back to exactly what you said, you know, pro capital is about is about taking care of the people that have a lot of money um, and and encouraging them to use their money to maybe benefit society and maybe create jobs, but really encouraging the accumulation of capital. Um, and so, you know, I think we're going to start seeing more of that. I think a lot of money is going to be made for sure, like in the, in the, in the Trump administration uh, by people who know what they're doing. A lot of money is going to be moved around, right? Like there's going to be a lot of people who lose money, a lot of people who, 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 who gain money. Um, but, you know, back to your, back to your point, uh, I think, or your question, I think, you know, there is something to be said for tearing down some of what's been built up in the government over the last, you know, 200 years. And I think some of the Trump vote is directly goes directly towards that desire, which is 
government's got out, gotten out of hand. It's gotten too big. We have too many agencies. We spend too much money. I mean, and I, I guarantee you there are people working for our federal government who like don't even show up to work every day, right? Like, I mean, that, that happens in big companies too, right? Like the bigger, the bigger your company gets and the longer it's been around, the more people you have kind of like hiding in the cracks, not providing any value. Um, and that probably is, is the case in the federal government too. And so, you know, when you, when you appoint somebody like uh, Rick Perry to run the Department of Energy, you know, he's got you know, n- no experience doing that at all, actually, you know, wanted to, wanted to de- uh, 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 destroy and uh, get rid of the Department of Energy when he was running for president uh, a few years ago. Like, that's the sort of person you hire if you want to destroy, you know, wings of the government. And so, you know, I, I'm open-minded enough to where I could say, hey, maybe there are some, some wings of the government that should be destroyed. Um, in fact, there probably are. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm okay with, with, with busting some shit up, you know, like that's fine. Like let's, let's, let's bust some shit up that shouldn't be there. Um, but what I worry about is what are we busting up and what are we replacing it with? So is it destruction or is it creative destruction? If it's creative destruction, uh, creative benevolent destruction that is replaced by something that is better than great, like I'm all for it. Um, if it is destruction with no plan, um, or destruction for the for the sake of destruction, then that's what I'm you know that's what I'm worried about. Huh. Well, I think there are some. I mean, who knows what the future will hold? But I think there are, are some what I would describe as like pro worker pro worker policies that um, that you know we ought to pursue. Like for example, there's a bill in the Congress that would um, take away the income tax. Uh, in employment tax withholding obligation when you transfer shares of stock, e-liquid shares of stock to workers. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the things that in my, in my mind makes no sense whatsoever. We have, uh, you know, if you have a company, like use Twitter as an example, you know, you join that company a year before its IPO, stock's got no, uh, it's not liquid yet. There's no public mark for that company stock yet. Companies are um, in a quandary, like there's a significant tax problem. Like, how do I get, how do I get equity in the hands of my workers? Mm-hmm. And I just, you can't transfer them stock because if you do, then there's like a massive income and employment tax withholding obligation that the employee has to pay and the employees can't afford it. Yep. And so there's a bill in the Congress that attempts to basically, this is one of the ideas I've been blogging about, which is the, Hey, why do we, this is anti-worker. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's e-liquid stock. Mm-hmm. Why not allow its transfer to workers mm-hmm. without any tax withholding? Yeah. Tax it when they sell it. Yep. But why, ta- why, why put a crimp on the sharing of equity with workers? Because what we ought to be focused on is trying to get everyone a piece of the pie, mm-hmm. not just the people who found companies, but everyone who works for them. Mm-hmm. Let's get them all as much of the pie as we can. And then, I mean, I think one of the things that, that's happened, unfortunately, is we had we we have you know parts of the country where it's just been it's been crappy. Yeah, it's not it's not been Seattle, right? Seattle's yeah. been phenomenal. Yeah, Seattle's been amazing. Yeah, but there's lots of parts of the country where it just hasn't been that great. Yeah, how do we how do we take like a, our new economy like magic or and like transport it in these places and get and get people you know, on the ride with us. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, there will be tactical victories like that for sure. Like, you know, that the law that you just mentioned, you know, affected me greatly at Twitter for sure, because I, you know, I had a a liquid stock and I had to pay taxes on it right away and it sucked. But, you know, I'm, I'm, those problems are, you know, 1% problems for the, for the, for the most part. I hope that like, I hope they get solved. I think it's great. Like if they get solved, um, I would have liked for that problem to be solved a few years ago for sure. Um, 
but you know, to your point about how do we sort of like, you know, how do how do we kind of take what what we have going on in tech and in Seattle and like deliver it, you know, so that more more of the country can benefit from it. You know, look at let's look at something like solar energy, right? So um, I think you know, yes, there are people who would like to keep coal jobs around. Um, but if you, I'm just guessing here, if you told somebody whose life depended on a coal job in, in West Virginia, if you told them, Hey, we're going to replace your coal job with a solar job that will, by the way, be around for the next hundred years. And we're going to pay you the same or more. Um, but we're going to pay you to, let's say, install solar panels on, on top of homes, um, or to participate in the manufacturing process of solar panels. Um, do you think that person would take it? You'd think gladly, so. yeah. gladly, right? And they'd probably feel great about it, right? Because it's not a handout. It's like you are you are you are providing a something that is not begrudgingly, you know, uh, used by 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 the, by the country. You're you're pr- producing you're producing something that is needed by the country and helps the world. Uh, and so, like that that stuff, you know, that th- that's the stuff that I worry about. Like I just read an article in Scientific American yesterday about how China is, you know beating the shit out of us in, in solar right now. And it's because they have basically spent the last, you know, 10, 20 years heavily subsidizing the industry. And, you know, really just like they, 10 years ago, they decided, you know what, solar's the future and there's no stopping it. And like the longer we wait, the further behind we're going to be. And lo and behold, they are producing by far and away the most and the cheapest solar panels. And there's no reason that that, that shouldn't be us. Um, and there may still be time for that to be us. But even if it's not, totally us. Even if we are buying solar panels from China, those panels still need to be installed. Um, and in 10 or 20 years, you know, almost every home in this country is going to have solar panels installed uh, on on the roof. Um, and so not everybody needs to be a coder or a designer um, or, uh, you know, an information worker to benefit from, uh, you know, the knowledge economy. Uh, and I think we just need to be a little bit more deliberate about what that kind of value chain looks like and how we get more of our country to participate in it. Huh. Well, so talk to us, Mike. So you, you were in a unique spot. I mean, you were at Twitter for a few years mm-hmm. and uh, you've just had a, a really interesting career in tech. I mean, when you think about what's around the corner that maybe the rest of us don't see because we're not as close to it. I mean, what do you, what do you think like some really neat things that are, that are going to happen uh, in the next couple of years? What, what might they be? Well, you know, I, I do think that we're reaching this interesting point where we are so immersed in our, our digital devices where we can kind of – it's unsustainable at this point. Um, we can go, kind of go in one of two directions. We can go in the like more, more, more direction, which is like, oh, my God, I don't like my phone. I want goggles. Um, and I want to be able to you know wear goggles around town all day and all night <laughs> um, and live this augmented reality. Um or, or just sit on my couch and play, you know, Quake or whatever people are playing these days. Quake's, wow, I just totally dated myself. Quake is like super old, right? <laughs> Doom. Um, that's even older. Doom. Uh, Halo. I remember Doom. Yeah. Uh, Call of Duty. You know, I mean, you name it. Like, we can, we can say, you know what? Like, we just want to be more and more and more immersed into, like, the digital world and we don't want to live in the real world anymore. And I think a lot of people are sort of already making that choice. Um, or we can go in the opposite direction and we can say, you know what? Enough. Like, I can't concentrate anymore because my phone is buzzing every five minutes. And I don't even want to post on Facebook or Twitter anymore because, you know, every time somebody likes the post, my phone buzzes. Um, 
I, I'm kind of in that latter group. Uh, like when I was growing up, my parents used to limit the amount of TV that I could watch because they told me it would reduce my attention span. And they told me I need to read more books. And I didn't believe didn't them. Did they say it would rot your brain? Uh, they, I don't think they ever went that far. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think they ever went to the rot the brain uh, part. Well, but, but I would certainly give that advice to my kids uh, if I had it kids. It would rot your brain. Well, I heard recently a VC said whenever he hears a parent tell a kid, stop that. It's going to rot your brain. He thinks that's the next $10 billion industry. Yeah, totally. <laughs> brain rotting. Very, very, very profitable. Um, but, you know, w- watching an hour-long TV show without – um, checking your phone is pretty difficult these days, right? Like you almost feel like you've read a book by the time you get done, you know, watching an hour of, of The Blacklist or, or uh, you know, your favorite show. Um, so uh, I think we're going to reach this sort of point. I think some of us have reached it already where we, we really need to kind of moderate our digital lives such that we can kind of get back to living in the real world. Um, and so there are going to be services that are specifically designed to keep you informed as informed as you need to be about the world with as little, uh, you know, screen time as possible. And those are really kind of the services that I'm, that I'm interested in. Services to help you keep, keep you in the real world. Exactly. Um, well, I mean, think about it this way. Of all the things that you, of, you know, of all the news items or just of all the information that you, that you took in digitally uh, over the last week, how much of it is relevant even tomorrow? Barely any of it, right? Like less than 1% of it is actually real. Like the thing about the, the story I just uh, – uh, the article I just told you uh, that I read about solar panels, like I consider that like pretty relevant, right? Like I'm going to remember that article and I like it, it's affected me and like I'm interested in it now because I read that article. That to me is something that is like an example of something that is like you should be reading um, because it's it's actually important to your life. But most of what you read on Twitter and on Facebook and on whatever news site that you happen to, you know, use every day, multiple times a day, um, is just designed to keep you kind of entertained. Um, and it's not actually important to the world or your life. And so ask yourself, you know, what could I be doing with my time? What could I be creating? What could I be designing? What could I be coding um, in all that time that I spent sort of being babys- babysat by all of this information that it, it frankly doesn't matter. Well, interesting thoughts. Yeah. So I've, I've thought for a while it would be cool if someone built a, uh, a device for your phone, which told you like, Hey, you know, congratulations. You haven't looked at your phone in an hour. Yeah. And then like maybe at the end of the day, I gave a report on like how long you had sustained periods without looking at your phone. Absolutely. And then you could build a leaderboard and you could yeah. be with your friends. <laughs> totally. No, it's a really, you're laughing, but it's a really good idea. And, and there are actually, uh, a couple companies I know of that are kind of feeling around that space. Like I actually, so one of the one of the things that I kind of thought about developing this year was a phone that was actually branded that way. So not even an app on your iPhone, not even just an app on your Android phone, but an actual phone that looked distinct. So when people saw you using the phone, they would know like, oh, that's Joe. He's really serious about not checking his phone. Like that's the phone that like you know. I think they call that they call it. that a, a a Motorola Razor, right? A Razor, like, <laughs> <a razor. laughs> exactly. But like, I can see that becoming kind of like a status thing, you know, where where like you have decided to really take control of your digital life, and therefore you're using this device that either like physically prevents you from you know using it a certain amount of times per day, or like uses all sorts of other mechanics to keep you from doing it. Sure. So yeah. the various default, I mean, some various default settings and things like this are set in a way to promote. You know, 
a different type of behavior. Yeah, or even like there's just a certain amount of apps that you can install. Like what about a phone where you could literally only install like six apps, you know? Or, you know, I think about the apps that I actually need on my phone. Okay, it's like maps, you know, uh, uh, messages, mail. Uh, you know, there's not that many, right? Like, Do you feel like you're becoming a curmudgeon? <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah. I, I think I think I am, you know? like, And, and I'm kind of leaning into it too. Like it's... <laughs> It's, uh, you know, it, it, we, we eventually become our parents, right? And, and uh, I think that's, that's certainly happening. That's funny. Well, I can't. I, I, I still, I'm trying to, it sounds really stupid, but I'm still trying to figure out how to learn to use Snapchat. I, my daughters use it, and I, like, I, it's one way to communicate with them because I know yeah. if I send them a Snapchat, they'll get it. Yeah. But I, I mean, it's... You're not supposed to know how to use it. It sounds idiotic. I have a hard time figuring out how to use it. So that's interesting that you bring that up because, uh, you know, we haven't talked a ton about design yet. Uh, I love in the, the Snapchat podcast. goggle yeah, yeah, yeah. campaign marketing. Image, sure. By the way. Like, it's a brilliant campaign. I wish I could get my help myself some of the spectacles just because yeah. the way they released it, I thought it was pretty unique. Yeah. They put a vending machine on yeah. the street. Yeah. And then they've limited release to... I mean, it's really fascinating, right? It's a good... Yeah. Moved by that company. It's a it's a cool product. I think you know a lot of people like to talk about how Snapchat chat is designed, and you know a lot of people, myself included, will say like, "Hey, it's not a very it's not a very well designed product. It's not like you can't you don't know how to use it when you first start." Um, and some people would say like that was actually either by accident or on purpose, but it's but it's sort of like serves the product well because it's a product that like kids are so motivated to use it because their friends are that they figure it out. Like kids will figure out almost any interface if yeah. they know that their friends are using are, are using it. But when parents pick it up, their first r- response is like, I don't know how to use this. It's it's a kid thing. It's not an adult thing. Therefore, I won't use it. It's and like kids actually, yeah. Parent-child barrier. It's a thing. barrier. Exactly. <laughs> it's sort of like a barrier built by bad design. Um, <laughs> fascinating, which, which in a sense makes it good design, you know? So yeah, it, it is fascinating. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, for kids, you know, just like what happened with Facebook, like eventually parents figure it out. And when they, when they realize they need to be on it too, either to protect their kids or for other reasons, they will figure it out. Right. So one day, Joe, one you'll, day. you'll figure it out. Well, yeah, my motivation is low. Cause I, I mean, anyway, my, I, mean, I don't have the motivation cause I don't have yeah. like every single friend I know in school using it. Yeah. So yeah, well, I mean, you use it. It's like these old lawyers that don't want to use email. <laughs> You know, you know what I mean? Like, right. you, do they still exist, Joe? I mean, it, it always seemed like at every firm that I was at, there was always at least like one old guy that was like his secretary would print all the emails and like just mark them up. I, it's got to be yeah. stopped. That's got to be going away. But but still. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure it's I'm sure it still exists. Yeah, of course. You know, I, I keep thinking there's got to be a I mean, somebody's got to be able to figure out how to redesign email to make it actually a uh, usable and enjoyable experience again, rather than sort of the nightmare it's become. Yeah. Well, I mean, some people think Slack is that thing. Um, and, you know, I've had, I've had, you know, mixed experiences with Slack. I mean, for me, it works best, you know, to help manage my fantasy football league, you know, like in a, in a, in a, uh, a group full of basically 14 people, it works great. It's just kind of like a group, a group channel for 14 people at the trash talk. Um, that works really well. Um, I think, you know, as soon as I start thinking about like, oh, how would it work for a, a 4,000 person organization who like needs to stay on top of things? I, I'm kind of more on the, I, I'm more on the the side of worrying that it's this kind of, you know, as, as Jason Freed from 37 Signals put it, it's a, I think he said, uh, or maybe DHH from 37 Signals said this, I can't remember. Uh, he basically said it's an all day meeting with no agenda. 
Like that's that's kind of what it can feel like if it's not used, you know, s- smartly. But um, you know, Slack is. Yeah, I see it in your in your menu bar, in your menu bar there, Joe. Yeah. So you can see you're, you're kicking the tires on it. But it's you know, it's a very well designed. Um, it's run by you know, in- incredibly smart, empathetic um, people who uh, you know who are really thoughtful about about the way they they design experiences, and therefore it's you know it's catching on. Yeah, yeah, I definitely. I mean, I don't know though. It just seems like. Uh, it seems like just email in general is one of those uh, those things that it's just going to be hard to ever see completely go away because it's yeah. it's coming ingrained in kind of how we live and mm-hmm. but uh, I know there's been some artificial intelligence uh, to, you know some companies are deploying AI to help you manage your in- inboxes mm-hmm. those are I think pretty mm-hmm. cool apps yeah. um, I know that on the new iPhone you can unsubscribe mm-hmm. I like that. Where just if you get if you like like me, you're sun, suddenly signed up for a gazillion things. There's an unsubscribe button that helps to just kind of weed out stuff that you never read anyway. Yeah, but still, it's email in general is still kind of a I rated a kind of a poor experience just in yeah. general using it. I, well, it comes down to like for me again, it comes down to frequency. It comes down to like it doesn't come down to like you know what what am I getting over email? It comes it comes down to like how often am I checking it? How often am I being interrupted by it? Because context switching. Um, is a very expensive thing, and people don't realize that it's happening um, often. You know, when you when you've, you you sit down, you know, you need to write something, whether it's a product brief or a, uh, an argument you're gonna you know you're gonna uh, uh, present in court or whatever. And you get into a groove for you know, you're, first of all, you're not into a groove for the first you know 10, 15 minutes. Then you are in a groove, and you're kicking ass, and like you're, you're producing something great. And then you know, oh, your pocket buzzes. Oh, email came in. Oh. Shit, that looks like a strong boss. I got to check it. Boom, and you're you know you've lost it at that point. And to get back to you know what you were doing is 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 difficult. And so you know some people have strategies where they say like you know I'm going to check email once in the morning, and then I'm going to check it like once you know right after lunch, and then once at the end of the day. And like that's probably the healthiest way to use email. Yeah, well, there's if that, you can afford to. There's that. There's that. Have you tried that technique where you get a kitchen timer and you just turn it on for 21 minutes or something, and then you don't do anything during that 21 minutes, but whatever it is you're doing, and then when it when it dings, you stop and you spend like five to ten minutes or whatever. Maybe mm-hmm. you check your email. Maybe you mm-hmm. get a cup of coffee, do something else, and then you go back and you choose. Okay, what am I going to work on next? And you turn the the kitchen timer to twenty one minutes. Yeah. Or I forgot the name of that technique. It was maybe Pomodoro. Uh, is yeah, right? yeah, Pomodoro technique. Yep. Yeah, I mean that's interesting idea. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, I think that's going to be that's going to that that's people don't realize how necessary that actually is, uh, and and how much productivity is lost because we're not proactively, you know, thinking about our time in that way. Right. Um, and some people don't want it, like self-included, like that's kind of a scary concept. Like I don't, there was actually a, you know, t- a Tony Wright, who's a, a, a works at uh, Glowforge now, yeah. um, Seattle entrepreneur. He came, you know, he created a, a service called rescue time. I think yeah. it was, you know, several years ago. And, you know, it was designed to kind of monitor your computer and tell you like, Hey, you're spending this much time in email and this much time on the web and this much time doing that. And like, I never used it because it scared the shit out of me. Like, <laughs> like, I am worried that I like that I'm like super super wasteful when it comes to how I spend time on my computer. So, but like that sort of mindset is kind of like not going to the doctor. Like, oh, I don't, I'm not going to get a checkup because I'm worried that I have like something, you know. And it's right. just bad. Like, you have to, you know, for your own health, you have to pay attention to stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Well. This has been, I feel like we should should probably wrap up. We're going longer than usual, but it's such a great conversation. Um, Really, really glad to have you on the show, Mike. This has been a 
terrific conversation. I, I, I say this a lot to folks. We should have you back. I'd love to talk more about design uh, sure. just in general, because I could probably talk about design for another hour on its own um, design of apps and, and where that stuff is going. Um, yeah. But, uh, but maybe for another time. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So, uh, any, any parting thoughts, maybe, uh, words of advice for folks in the startup community before we, ha- before we sign off? Yeah, I would say, you know, for a lot of people, self-included, like, uh, you know, 2016 sort was, was kind of a big reset in terms of like what matters. And I think, you know, for the last few years, there's been a lot of hand wringing in, in tech and in design about like, you know, are you working on something that matters? Like, does anybody really need another photo sharing app? Does anybody really need another, another one of these? And so, you know, some of us have said, well, you know, I have, you know, I've got a new take on it. So yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to continue doing that. And others have said, you know what, that's really not important. But I think, you know, if, if 2016 has taught us anything, it's that there are very important problems that need to be solved immediately. <laughs> Um, in the world and in this country and especially in government. Um, and so, you know, if you're, if you're in tech, uh, in the, whether it's design engineering or any other function, um, you know, maybe this is your time to say, you know, to do it, to do kind of a career reset and say, what, you know, what problems do I want to solve for the world in the next, you know, in the next few years, as opposed to like, how am I going to make a buck? Um, and, uh, you know, if you, ta- if you take that mindset, you know, y- you will find a limitless amount of things that you can, that you can help solve. And many of them will be in Seattle. Some of them may, you know, uh, cause you to, to, to move elsewhere. But like this is, I want to look back on 2016 and 2017 as like maybe a traumatic time, but like, wow, I'm so glad that. Uh, you know, this shockwave kind of hit tech and hit the world and, and, and woke us up and realized that we need to be working on real problems to solve. And I think there's a chance that in, you know, five or 10 years, we look back on this year and say, wow, this is the year we really did get our shit together. It wasn't, um, it wasn't fun and it wasn't like pleasurable at all times, but like, this is the year we realized that we really need to work on problems that matter. Great, great advice. I think uh, I'm, I'm with you. Let's uh, let's hope we see some good things out of the year to come. And uh, and Mike Mike Davidson, thanks for being on the show. Thanks everyone else for listening. We'll see you all next week.